Look, I think this is a long game. A lot of times you don't see the results until you're a few years out. At the same time, the fundraising game is a very short game, which means you want to show results very quickly so the LP sees that you are ahead of the pack. So there's a huge disconnect there. And I think the pressure has always been there to show short-term results in a long-term game. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I am Bernard Leong, and is the era of cheap money finally over for startups? And what does it mean for Southeast Asia, where it is in the intersection between US and China? To help me with this, I have invited Lim Guo Yi, co-founder and managing partner of Monks Hill Ventures, who I've known for a decade. Guo Yi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Bernard. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, I think this is a long time coming. So as a first-time guest on the podcast, I we always want to go straight to your origin story. How did you start your career? It's a pretty meandering. I, I am trained as an engineer. Like you, I had a PhD as well. Did my undergraduate in engineering and then did a PhD in, in nano uh, photonics. So it was a combination of nanotechnologies and photonic devices. So I spent, year, spent eight years in academia before then, you know, moving into the business part of the world, I guess. Spent a couple of years as a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group in the US before doing my first startup that was back in year 2000. So that kind of puts me in terms of where, how old I am. But my first go around in the startup world was in, in 2000 working in a, in a machine learning, a big data startup. So that was the start of my journey, both on the startup side of things, founding, operating in, in early stage companies, as well as working with venture capital investors as well. I think after three rounds in, in startups, my first stint as an investor was with the Singapore government's stat board called IDA or Infocom Development Authorities back in 20. 10. I think that's when you and I met. That was my first go at being a VC. Did that for three years on behalf of the government. And that's how the VC career got started. Before Monster Ventures became something that Peng, my co-founder and myself, founded back in 2013. So I think given that you were the CEO of Infocom Investments in the Infocom Development Authority of Singapore, we're called ID, and now it's called the Infocom Media Development Authority. What have you learned from being a venture capitalist in the public sector versus now as you go into pure private venture capital firm? Clearly, I think there's, there's the, the, the sense that yeah, innovation never really stops. There's always the next thing and the next thing. And it's always inspiring to be working with some of the best entrepreneurs. That doesn't change. I think that remains exciting. That keeps you know myself going and a lot of my peers as well i don't think that has changed innovation opportunity set appearing across over the horizon and very smart very motivated people address those opportunities and that remains to be the the key motivating factor for being a vc i think what has maybe changed over time and over the years is just a different that innovation has expanded beyond silicon valley back in when i was at infocom investments a lot of time was still spent in the valley, perhaps maybe in Scandinavia, and looking for startups that could come to Asia. But now innovation is happening everywhere. In Southeast Asia, for example, in the last eight years, it's a good demonstration of what's possible from an innovation perspective. I think you have a pretty illustrious career, academia, startup, then VC. In your career journey, what are the valuable lessons that you can share with my audience? One of the stories I like to relate when I graduated from my alma mater, MIT, is whenever you go up and get your degrees, and I've done it a couple of times, there's always someone who is the president of the university on stage 
as you receive your degrees telling you to keep moving, keep moving, and keep moving. While it is really to make you keep moving off the stage, but it became really something that I think a lot of us take to heart, keep moving. The, the great thing that I took away from a lot of what we do is that there's always the next thing in front of you. There's very little looking back. I think that's one key thing that keep me and keep everybody excited. This space is always about what's next. Who's the next founder? What's the next opportunity? So you just got to keep moving. And that's something that we keep in mind all the time. That's interesting. I think there's, of course, differ differing views on what is going to be next. But that comes to the main subject of the day, which I want to talk about Monk's Hill Ventures and investment in Southeast Asia at a pretty uncertain time that we have. I want to start the conversation on Monk's Hill Ventures. Given that I've interviewed your co-founder, Ping Sid, or everyone knows him as Ping in Southeast Asia a few years back on his origin. I also saw the rise of Monk's Hill Ventures and you're definitely on track with your third fund. I probably think it's already raised and it's already closed. The first question I want to ask, how has the fund evolved from its origin to today? And what are the key milestones that your team has managed to achieve to its present state today? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, looking back you know, over the last eight years, one thing that I think we're quite proud of is that we've been very, very consistent. Our strategy has always been about A, in entrepreneurs and operators backing the next generation of entrepreneurs and operators and bringing what is ultimately a very shared set of uh, experiences as founders before and, and now and bringing that to the table, being empathetic to the new founders, working with them very closely. So that hasn't changed. What also hasn't changed is our portfolio construction in terms of how many deals we invest in per partner and per fund. It remains to be very concentrated. So each one of us don't do a lot of deals per fund, four, five, maybe six investments. And we remain very focused on those you know, high conviction investments that we have made. So you've looked across all three funds and, and you are right, we're in the process of, we have raised fund three. Uh, we're in the process of closing that out right now. We have exceeded our target and beyond. So we're quite thankful for the to the LPs for that. But what hasn't changed is continuing to look for the best funnels we can find, focus on the ones that we really have high conviction in, and, and spending our time, energy, resource with each and every one of them. Um, so there's been a lot of developments in Southeast Asia over the last year or so. You see a lot of ups and downs. We went through high cycles and, and even higher cycles the last year or so. Uh, one thing that I'm pretty happy to see is that we have set, stayed the course in terms of our strategy and the way we approach uh, our investments. I think last year was kind of the year of exits because of all the the big ones like the Grabs and Gojeks going public in their own different ways. And also we start to see the next cycle of companies, be it maybe Web 2, Web 3 or Web 2.5 or some people like to call it. Mm -hmm. but. I think one interesting thing I probably like to ask you is what are the things that did not work out in the process over the course of the eight years? And what would you have done differently in investing and building out your portfolio of companies? Look, I think this is a long game. A lot of times you don't see the results until a few years out. And at the same time, the fundraising game is a very short game, which means you want to show results very quickly so the LP sees that you are ahead of the pack. In fundamentally, what is a very long game? So there's a huge disconnect there. And I think the pressure has always been there to show short-term results in a long-term game. Last year in particular, I put a lot of pressure on fund managers like us to chase deals that can show very uh, quick markups, quick valuation jump in a short amount of time, which I think led to a very different kind of investing where you're looking for that high growth, hyper growth. My partner likes to call it negative blitz scaling, where you really boost your top line at the expense of the bottom line. 
uh, kind of approach. And, and I think that puts a lot of pressure. Looking back, I think we have seen the course, as I mentioned earlier, we have not veered away from well, what we believe has always been core, which is the first principles-based approach to every single deal. The fundamentals need to make sense. It shouldn't be just a reflection of the time where you can sort of like abandon those fundamentals and go, times are different. We can be unprofitable and still be good. I don't think that changes. We and I are old enough to know that it always comes back to first principles. The market does. So I think the short answer to your question, but I'm not going to avoid the question. I don't think... We have seen enough the clock yet to be able to make a call as to what we missed out on. We certainly have, might have missed out on some stuff, some trends, some spaces that we should have invested into. Perhaps we missed some of those, but time will tell. Time will tell. The reckoning will come in a few years' time or more. I do believe that we've done a bunch of stuff correct, which is our approach in terms of how we talk to the founders, work with them, portfolio construction, the high conviction, first principles approach remain to be core to what we do. And I think now that we've gone through the highs, some level, the irrational high, we're now back to the, the neutral position in my mind, where fundamentals matter. And I think that's kind of playing out well for us. And that's fair point, by the way. I think investing is a long game sometimes. You, you, as someone, I think like Bill Gates used to say, you overestimate what you can achieve in a year, but you grossly underestimate what you can achieve in a decade. That's correct. I, I want to ask you, what is a typical day look like for you as a VC? It's a question I ask every VC. <laughs> uh, yeah, every day is different, which is why I think this, this thing keeps me you know, excited and up and gets me off the bed very easily every day. Look, I think as a managing partner of a firm, we are always looking at a few things. One is always the deal flow, working with new opportunities, working with existing portfolio companies is a big part of the day. That I think would easily take up 60, 80% of the time. The other amount of time we spend would be largely around LP relations. So limited partners are investors in our funds. They invest with us into the companies through our funds. So there's quite a bit of time working with them as well. And, and by the way, that's one part of the, the VC experience that I really enjoy because I learned a lot from talking to the LPs. And last but not least, we are building a business. We are a startup in our own right. There's a lot of things to be put in place, culture, process, structure, people, development, next generation leaders. We're very proud to say that we're the largest investing partnership in Southeast Asia, five partners across Southeast Asia. So while Ping and I are the two co-founders, we very much believe that Mangsu Ventures is well a way of being in the hands of the next generation of partners. So, but that takes time to build the team and all of that, the culture. So all those three elements, portfolio, the new, the existing, LP relations, and firm, firm building, I think those three at any one time will keep me very busy and all of us as well are very busy across the firm. Mm. This is interesting because talking to all the different VCs who start out in the 2012 to 2014 era, everybody is starting to build their next generation of leaders and thinking about succession in play for the firm so that the firm can last maybe another few decades more. Is there something is really inherent in the company building process? Because I mean, in, in, if you look, go back to the years of the 1999, where the first internet.com boom happened in this region, right? None of those VC funds have actually, maybe with the exception of uh, tax ventures, they have raised more than, I don't know where, I think probably like fund five and six now. Is, is that a natural progression of the firms moving forward? It is an important element in terms of building a platform that in sort of 
reflects and projects the values and become a player that's relatively persistent and consistent in the ecosystem. You, you just got to build for that. Every fund is a 10-year fund on the average, typically. And then you're running a few funds every couple of years or so. So this is a long game, as we, as we talked about earlier. It will go past a lot of our sell-by dates individually. And so for this thing to last and to make sense, there needs to be more than just one generation of partners. I'll tell you, though, talking to a lot of LPs that have invested for example, I spoke to an LP. She invested in the first fund of benchmark capital. And she has invested in every single benchmark capital fund since then. That's amazing experience of seeing the, the progression of that one well-known, renowned fund that's never grown very big, always stay the same, stay the course, and obviously very good returns as well. Succession planning is one of the toughest things to do. VC at some level is a high-octane, high-ego game. Right, the GP that's successful aspire to get the Midas touch kind of recognition, etc. So it's always about the individual, and there's always the the appeal to stay ahead of the game, and, and to be that apex partner in the firm, and, and so to be able to kind of build a firm that lasts beyond that that one generation is a difficult, difficult thing. Economics matter, culture matters, relative lack of ego is important as well. So I would say it's difficult. It's difficult. And it's something that we're working at every day, every quarter, every year. And it never stops. It never relents. Mm. So it's a tough thing. And we all need to do it, I think. Mm. And I think it's pretty interesting because I can see in the 2014 onwards, all the VC funds have actually progressed, mature, and going into their next cycle, as in mm. growing stronger and stronger. But I'm going to go to, I've got to take away from the VC side of the perspective and go back to the startups, which you serve daily, you meet founders of startup daily. What are the traits that you index for to know if you want to invest in the founding team and the startup itself? I think this is almost cliche, but you know, I have to say that the founders matter a lot. We are not experts as much as the founders would be. And founders is going to make a lot of differences in terms of how the company plays out. It is a very long process of building a big business. And so conviction in the founders, the ability to stay the course, it is very key to the investment decision. But at the same time, so much of the learning happens to the founders, right? The nuances of the industry, why they work, why the company's approach can give them a very strong and viable and big and fast growing foothold. All those things depend so much on the founder's insights, in addition to the ability to execute against the insight. And so I would say at the end of it, the founders and the team just matter so much in the equation, particularly when you're investing in the early stage, where there's so little history or track record to fall back on. And a lot is based on what you believe can happen with this team. The world is a fast-changing environment. We've seen that in the last few years. A lot of curveballs are being thrown at us, the pandemic, and obviously in the last year or so, the war. Big one, right? The supply chain, the geopolitics, and everything else. And so there's always going to be all these upheavals and changes. But for the founders to stay the course and to understand where the true north is and stay internationally headed there, it takes a very special team. So if I reverse the question, then what are the red flags you will look out for now? given you've seen so many companies today? Um, the, the reflex, I think, I think the things that will give us pause about whether we would want to go and participate in the round, the founding team and, and their clarity about why they're doing it 
and their understanding of the fundamentals and how they plan to execute on the fundamentals of the business matters a lot. The balance around the equilibrium that they put between growth and, and profitability is tough. It's very tough to get that. And so, and so the lack of clarity around that is always a, a challenge. I wouldn't say a red flag. It would give you a lot of pause as to hmm, maybe this is not the right situation for us. The lack of clarity around what the opportunity set is, again, the founders have the best insight. They should be the best person to articulate what is right behind, what are they headed towards, and why is it the right place to head to, what is the opportunity in front of them, and, and getting conviction around that. If there's no clarity around that, no matter how slick the pitch is, if there's no very clear objective clarity around that, it is also a very difficult thing to pull a trigger on. I think the software is eating the world. I, I don't know where it's going in, in terms of the direction, but maybe if you look at, say, the, the region itself, what are the key industry verticals that would interest you today? And where are the new companies coming from, probably in certain sectors for you? Yeah, yeah we've seen some waves of innovation and progression. Clearly, there's a second wave of e-commerce. I think the first wave, we've seen the emergence of companies like Lazada, Shopee, Tiki in Vietnam, etc. So those are kind of the first generation of e-commerce, if you would. Very much a marketplace, very much about accessibility and pricing. And so that's the first set of e-commerce value proposition. The next wave of e-commerce right now is really about who you're buying from. So brand matters, uh, who you're buying with. So who else is in the social interaction with you in the buying process and how you're buying it? You know, uh, are you buying on the Instagram? Are you buying for a live selling platform? Is it entertaining? Is it fun? Is it interesting? Is it exciting? So, so that is now the second wave and uh, defining the second wave of e-commerce. And we're seeing different players supporting that. We're seeing emergence around that. But the other thing that I think is unique about Southeast Asia is the the proliferation of technology beyond the, 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 urban, the urban core into the second and third tier cities, what I call rural tech. Interestingly, people think of villages and second tier cities, there's no money to be made, spending power is low. It's actually not entirely true. What we've seen from some of our companies, for example, Nangangan and, and several other companies, startups, is that there's actually quite a bit of value to be unlocked. The question is accessibility. The question is being served correctly. And so there's a whole bunch of value proposition that can be targeted towards that, that rural or the suburban right, population, which is by no means small and collectively large in terms of spending power. And within that is the whole conversation around agriculture. That is a big part of the Southeast Asia economy. We sit on the equator, everything grows well. If there's something in the ground, it just grows. <laughs> So we are a breadbasket so collectively across well, Singapore, obviously, but Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam. I've been on the ground in some of the, these places, and I'm amazed about how fertile Southeast Asia is. But there's a lot that can be done. You can get a lot more out of it, and it's a big part of the economy. So there's a lot of value to be, to be had for modernizing that, making that pro more productive, etc. So that part, very uniquely Southeast Asia as well. Mm -hmm. The opportunity center. I agree with you. Um, I recall you look at one interesting fruit we have, the durian, um, is China. And their margins are extremely high. I think somewhere above 30%. Yeah. And just when I said the AI tools might be too expensive for you, they told me, no, we can definitely pay for that. So, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of the most interesting things I've tried is a fruit called the Matoa for your readers to find out, M-A-T-O-A. Okay. 
is indigenous to Papua. Oh. It's a hard shell. You peel the shell. The flesh texture-wise tastes like lychee. Flavor-wise tastes a bit like durian. Oh, interesting. I'm going to try to find that to try. If you can find, if you get your hands on the matua, try it out. It's actually pretty okay. addictive. So I think one interesting question that has always, you know, startups always ask is, what is your mental model in thinking about valuations of the companies within this region? I think in China, it was overinflated. I think now because of the VC funding have gone down by another half, I think somewhere around 8.5 billion this quarter as half from the last quarter, valuations in Southeast Asia behaved in terms of thinking about them. I don't think there's a magic number. Every category, every stage is different. The cycle, stage of the cycle is different. If anything at all to take reference, I think last year or two, we were probably at the peak and at the overflowing, overhyped peak where things are 25, 50 X of you know, uh, revenue, et cetera. I mean, those are clearly not sustainable. And what is driving those was clearly, as we now understand it now and also back then, just the liquidity, the amount of capital in the market is very low interest and has low risk. So there's no, almost no risk to, to bet on those high-risk ventures and, and get high valuation. If you look at the trough, uh, I remember in 2012, not exactly the trough, but you know, in the more normal times, uh, when we were, I was an investor uh, when I was at Infocom Investments in a company called Twilio. And I remember talking to the other co-investors in the, in the company. We were projecting a 3 to 5x revenue multiple IPO. And that was a good outcome. So I think the right valuation is probably closer to that, maybe somewhere in between, but definitely closer to the 3 to 5x as opposed to the 25 to 50x, if you ask me, right, for most businesses. You know, this is interesting. I recently got Yao on the show and he was actually mm. working for you and did the investment in Twilio, joined Twilio and came back to Asia as an operator, then worked for Ali, Ali Cloud, and now he's an angel investor. See, all these things, the virtual cycles all added up in a very different way. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, Yoshin has mm. done really well. I, I, but, the, but credit to you too. So I want to ask you, what are the interesting companies that you have worked with within your portfolio? I know every company within Rungs Hill is special. Okay, I, I get that. And, nah. um, but I also very curious to know what makes the founding team of some of these startups that you work with very interesting. Uh, full disclosure, I'm an investor to one company in your portfolio, Coder School. So I think I've just got it out of the way. Yeah. Look, we have about 40 plus, almost 50 portfolio companies over the last, across the three funds now. So you're right. Absolutely. It's very difficult to say one is kind of like the, the pick of the lot. Look, there's always a special place for the first few investments that we made and, and I made. And at first, the first investment that we ever made as a firm is Ninja Van, which is the very first company called The Fund. And, and that has done pretty well given the trajectory of the business, right time as well, e-commerce has taken off. But I think we invested in a team that at that point was 28 years old in general mm. across the founders. I 27, 28 I, I think so. it's interesting because I was sitting on the other side when I was in Singapore post looking at Ninja Van. I think the counter positioning mm. was interesting. And if you read Hamilton Helmer's Seven Powers and you look at the decision process from the other side, that means the incumbent, we are totally being counter positioned by what Ninja Van is doing. And that is why we couldn't pull the trigger. Because if we pull the trigger once, there's going to be another five one more coming up. I thought it was interesting because you mentioned that 
But how about other companies? Yeah, so so there's always a special place for that. I think it's just a work in progress. So we again, we don't know the score, the final score on that on that investment yet. Newer newer investments such as Upmesh, uh, which is a very new investment that we just made in a live live selling place that has gone off through a strong start, tapping on the emerging trend as I mentioned earlier you know, in terms of the second wave of e-commerce. So we're seeing some interesting. Thing there, but I'll tell you what's most exciting and, and satisfying about companies like Upmesh and the various stunts, various companies we have made investments in Crowdy, Coda School, you mentioned, Glins, etc., is the impact that they can have. I'll give you an example Upmesh is supporting very small sellers using you know, live streaming as a medium to sell, and these are folks who are working out of their home in, in, in the Philippines. Right, selling a whole bale of used clothes, so they buy a huge bale, X kilograms of used clothes, and just putting them on, going online, showing it off, and selling it. And by that, they make more income than their regular job. And to be able to enable that kind of livelihood is is amazing feeling. And this is one example of it. I, th- I think that's one of the satisfying thing about working in Southeast Asia. Hmm. I think solving Southeast Asia problems right. seems to be becoming more prevalent. Then people trying to take Absolutely. the US China model and then try to copy and paste it here and doesn't work. Absolutely mm. correct. I think recently the information which you and I know, a Silicon Valley publication, they also have an Asia presence, um, reported flow of more uh, venture capital from China into Southeast Asia. And I mean, even as an operator myself, I deal with both worlds now. I deal with enterprise software from China, I deal with enterprise software from the US. And of course, Singapore sits between US and China being a gateway. What does it mean for the startup ecosystem in this region in terms of thinking about the type of venture capitalists they're going to get? I mean, plus the local firms as well. Yeah. I think one feature of Southeast Asia ecosystem has always been very, almost from day one, we've always had the presence of investors and players from different parts of the world. And that's one thing that makes Southeast Asia unique and exciting. Where we have Americans, we're Europeans, Japanese, Koreans, Australians, Indians that came through on the investing side. And the Chinese are not going to be excluded. They are large, they are experienced from an investor perspective, the ability to accumulate assets, capital to be able to deploy against innovative companies within China and not beyond the shores of China as well is inevitable, has really happened. And I think the recent events, the geopolitics, them being shut out of India to a large extent. And the emergence of Southeast Asia as an opportunity set in itself is going to draw capital here in Southeast Asia from China. So I think that's inevitable. It's not new from a experience perspective, having a new player or having an increased presence of uh, existing players in town. Southeast Asia has always been open anyway. And I think it's all for the good. It's all for the good because it brings a different level of experience, different level of play, and elevates the game for everybody. I do feel that, to your point earlier, to solve Southeast Asia problem, you really got to go deep down on the ground and appreciate the nuances in the demand, the pain points, the needs of Southeast Asians, and how Southeast Asians work collectively to solve those problems, the culture element of that. And I would submit that that's quite different from China and India, and understanding that it's quite key to be successful in Southeast Asia. So given that you and I have been participants in the Southeast Asia ecosystem for the past decade, what are your reflections on the market in general? Is there a myth of a so-called common market, or is it just countries that you need specific strategies that startups need to think about when you want to go into these countries? 
And I think one thing that we've realized over the years and the market has demonstrated is that there's some commonality in the market. Not 100% equal, like for like. There clearly are differences, but there's enough commonality for companies to become big across the region without being very different business model and product-wise. Grab is a good example. Travel local to a large extent is, 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 is so multinational across the region now, et cetera. So certain sectors, I think, lends itself pretty well. Ninja Van, for example, is in six countries delivering you know, at, at speed across scale across the six countries. And so I think some of these sectors lend itself pretty well. The, the pain point is the same. All right. The aspiration of the consumer is the same. There will be certain sectors that will have some differentiation and that need to be very clear and targeted on the local needs, right? hyper-local needs. For example, I mean, fintech is one clear one, particularly if we are targeting consumers. The regulations, the industry structure, just is a big part of the consideration. And so if you go into HR tech, payroll, HR, et cetera, I mean, you do payroll in Singapore, it's very different from doing payroll in Malaysia, et cetera, et cetera. So those require you to be quite you know, sensitive to NISA locally, to be productive and, and, and meaningful. So, so it, that, it comes down to that level of resolution and the thinking. Uh, as opposed to a broad brush, or it all looks different, so everything is very friendly. Not that's not necessarily true. It's true in some cases, not true in other cases. How would you advise founders today in thinking about geographic expansion? And I guess just taking alluding to what you just said, right? What would be the pitfalls mm. that they need to avoid? I think one thing they need to be quite clear on is the value proposition that they have, and then how does a value proposition translate to a different market? Now, I, I say that. Not because you need to be exactly the same value proposition in each of the market. You're just going to be quite clear about what those are. Again, to give you an example, back on ArtMesh again, the value proposition of ArtMesh to a Singaporean seller is very different from a Filipino seller. They use the same ArtMesh platform to support live selling, fulfillment, payment, etc. But the needs, the main reason why they want to use it and willingness to pay is actually quite different. So the value proposition is different. So you just got to be quite clear of where the commonality is and where it ends and tweak your go-to-market, your approach, and to some extent, even the productization that's localized to those markets. That is the advice I would give to, to founders. Be relatively high resolution in your thinking process. Do not be lazy about it. Spend time to understand. Get on the ground and really appreciate the differences, and and then make a sort of like smart decisions about how you would develop your product accordingly. Secondly, is really build a culture that taps on the local talent and people. It, it, there's no monopoly of intelligence in any one particular nationality. The best performing team I found is actually a collection of best performing team in each of the countries, but bound collectively by the same vision and vision and belief in the value proposition to their markets. Mm. So given we have just gone from a boom to an uncertain market with money becoming more expensive today, I still don't know whether it's going to get more expensive. If you were to write a memo to your startups like what Sequoia and Y Combinator did, what are the key points you would tell them in the memo? I would say that this is the best time to build because uh, the lease is a lot less 10x, 100x less noisy than it was before. You don't have folks who are easy, getting funded easily and doing distracting, irrational stuff that, that just muddy things up. So this is actually the best time to work, the quietest time to work. And when it's the quietest time to work, you can focus. 
you can be clear of all this distraction and it's the best time to execute. If you're very clear about the need for your value proposition in this time and space. So for companies that were built on fundamentals and first principles, right, this is actually a very good time. So my final question to you then, what does great look like for Monks Hill Ventures in the next few years? For us personally as a firm, Monks Hill Ventures uh, stands for a certain set of values where we, we approach founders with a lot of humility. We believe they're doing very difficult things. We are there to support them, be empathetic. And I think that value I want, and I'm very hopeful to see that happening regardless of who people touch amongst events as a firm. That would translate, hopefully, to financial success for all of us, including the founders and our LPs. That financial success will also come along with that real impact on the lives of people that, that we are, have the fortune of having our companies products reach those users and their lives are positively changed. And those will be very satisfying thing to see. Uh, imagine being on the ground in a second or third tier village, seeing a shop owner being able to benefit from the use of the software that's done by our portfolio company, for example. And that will be the most satisfying thing for all of us. That's a very great place to end. So, Goyi, many thanks for coming on the show. Um, in closing, I still have two more questions for you. The first is, any recommendations which have inspired you recently? That's a tough question, Bernard. I, I, I wish I had the time to really introspect and think about it. I, I just spent a, quite a bit of time talking to my LPs recently across the U.S. And, and, and worldwide. What is awesome is to kind of think about the amount of capital that is moving to smart places. Right. And I think that's a groundswell of, of intent to direct those capital to real good climate uh, change. I think it's one area where people are really applying their capital against. Uh, impact in emerging markets is the other part, changing people's lives fundamentally. So it's all inspiring when you're talking to billions, almost trillions of dollars of capital, having a clear direction against some of these causes. It's just awesome to see at a global level. So that's always inspiring that we are just a small slice of it. Our fund is 200 million. We're not trillions of dollars, but we're part of that flow to direct towards change. And that's very inspiring, satisfying, and humbling. Uh, I'm very happy to be a part very of that. Very close to the the values of approaching things with humility. How can my audience find you? We are on the... Welcome to visit us on our website, www.monkshill.com, N-O-N-K-S-H-I-L.com. You can see us on LinkedIn. You can see us uh, on Facebook as well. So do feel free to reach out to, to us, any one of us. We have team members in Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Vietnam in both Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi. People in Kuala Lumpur as well. We have colleagues in, ex-colleagues in Bangkok and, and the Philippines. So. So please reach out to us and feel free to reach out to us in any of the mm. channels. And definitely you can find this podcast in any platform. And by the time this episode is published, it's our eighth birthday. And uh, I think uh, we have actually hit uh, 2.5 mil uh, download plays across all platforms this year. Yeah, the first million was actually the hardest. Actually, we done in 2019 and 2 mil was last year. So I I'm, I'm squeezing Amazing. it down already. So, uh, yeah, Amazing. so it's a five-star review. And I know a lot of people discover my podcast through attend uh, because I know my audience came from all the World Economic Forum. So please continue to support, but please just click a five-star for me. So, uh, Kwai, many 
Sounds Wait, good. Many thanks for coming on the show. Um, I look forward to more conversations like this and uh, have a good time. Thank you very much, Bernard. Uh, good night, everybody. Take care. Run it, run it, run it.